unwritten but oft-spoken about traditions that we got from AA is that we don't do cross-gender sponsorship. I have broken that tradition. (laughs) Uh, One of the main reasons that they are against this, of course, is that they're afraid you'll end up sleeping with your sponsor, and it certainly happened to me. (laughs) But when you live with somebody, you really know what kind of program they work. They tell you to choose someone whose program you really admire, somebody who you would like to be like, and that's how I chose my sponsor. Uh, He was not my first sponsor, but the sponsor that I have now. He works a program that just amazes me. His level of spiritual commitment amazes me. I would like to introduce my husband, my lover, my friend, my playmate, my sponsor, my hero, ADR. First, I want to thank Marcia for those kind and gentle words. I think I spent a lot more time in the last few weeks worrying more about what Marcia would say about me than what I would say about me. And I want to thank Joyce uh, for inviting me and all of you who participated in that invitation and for all of you who are here. I think I know almost without exception every single one of you in your faces and your names, and it's just just great to be surrounded by so many uh, Al-Anon friends. Joyce was very tactful when she talked to me. Uh, I don't recall that she said anything about the time allotted to me, but I did notice on the flyer she had put in just one hour for the Al-Anon speaker. (laughs) And uh, we'll stick to that. Uh, I'm pretty sure she was concerned about it. She knows that I have a long story, and some of you are probably concerned too. I'm not going to ease your mind much, but I'll give you a few, I'll give you a few hints. Um, I was born in the 20th century, not the 19th. And on the day that I was born, if my mother had not been otherwise occupied, she and some of her women friends would probably have gone out and voted for the first time in their lives. It's a long time ago. Uh, I am glad to be here. I, I'm really pleased and happy about that. And I'm honored, uh, also probably a little bit nervous, but uh, that's okay, too. Uh, I do use notes, and I hope you'll be comfortable with that. Uh, When I don't use notes and I lose my place, and that's apt to happen, then I go back to the first page of my notes and start over again. (laughs) And uh, we don't want to do that today. If I'm not coming across through the speaker, why wave your hands or do something like that if you can't hear me. But uh, David James James says it's okay now, so we'll go on. Uh, Whenever I speak uh, about uh, my story, I'm always concerned about the mess that I was in. Um, To me, it was a big mess. Uh, I just couldn't imagine anything bigger. But as I came to Al-Anon, I found out that so many of you were in such terrible, awful, big messes that mine just seems very small. I want to tell you, I did not grow up Uh, in an alcoholic home. Uh, I was not abused as a child. Uh, As an adult, I never woke up one morning and found myself in a strange city, uh, abandoned by my spouse, a sick two-year-old on my hands, fired from my job, no money, and pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm thankful for all of that. (laughs) That just wasn't, uh, wasn't part of my story. 
I will tell you that I was different, uh, and I grew up in a family where I knew I was different, but the remarkable thing was it didn't make any difference to me. Um, I was a, a sickly child. I was thin. <clears throat> I was puny. I spent a lot of time at the doctor's office. Uh, I was uh, <clears throat> introspective and withdrawn, uh, sometimes a little bit tearful, and uh, just, a, just a, a poor child. I was not athletic at all. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, when elementary school, when the rest of the kids went out to play, I went down to the nurse's office, got my graham cracker and glass of milk, and when I'd finished those, I got my little blanket and got on a cot and took a nap twice a day in all of elementary school. And I still didn't think I was too much different, I guess. <clears throat> but that was the beginning. And I was very bookish and, like I said, not very athletic. And that was okay. About the time I was 13, I discovered girls and making good grades. And I had a lot more success with making good grades than I did with the girls. <laughs> so I pretty much stuck to that. And a few years later, uh, I went to a prestigious college on a 100% scholarship and got two engineering degrees. Shortly after I got those degrees, I got married. You see, I'm not that much different anyway. I got married, and uh, we went out to, to California to seek our fortune. Um, the war was on at that time, so our honeymoon was very short, just a matter of a few months. And then I was uh, into the Navy and, and doing my bit there. When I got out of the Navy, I went back to school and got another engineering degree. And by this time, we had our first child, and we headed back to California uh, once again to seek our fortune. I don't want to lose, lose my place uh, with these notes. Uh, the God's really uh, shown on us in California. Uh, we did well, and we had a lot to be grateful for. Uh, after being out there two years, uh, we moved into a new solid redwood house. It had random plank flooring and a fireplace, and a lot of things were growing in the yard. And uh, I really loved my work. I was doing research, and we were healthy, and it just looked like we should have been on top of the world. And we really weren't. I don't know to this day what was wrong. It's something, there was an undercurrent somewhere of something that just wasn't right. And about all we knew about it was to try harder, socialize a little more, drink more a little wine, push a little harder. But uh, looking back, it was clear that the marriage and the family relations were sort of fraying at the edges a little bit. Um, I want to move ahead and tell you about an incident which I think foretold a little bit of the future, although we didn't know it at the time. We went to Port Arthur to visit my parents, and by this time we had another child, a, a baby. And one Sunday morning, my wife woke me up in a panic and said, I got into your father's liquor cabinet last night, and I drank the whole bottle and I need something to refill it. And I never hesitated. I jumped up, put on some clothes, got in the car, I drove across town to a bootlegger. And I, don't, I didn't know any bootleggers. I don't know where I found it. But I got some liquor, came back, and filled that bottle up. <clears throat> and I told my parents that I'd been out to get some medicine for the baby and that we needed to leave. And two hours later, we packed and were on our way back to California. And when we got back to California, we just buried that big elephant in the backyard and to the best of my knowledge, we never, ever again mentioned or spoke about that incident. Those of you who are in the program know exactly what happened in that home that day. And if you'd been looking in on us, you would have known that uh, my wife had either passed or was passing that, that line where she no longer had control over alcohol. 
And I had already passed that line of being a full-blown, dyed-in-the-wool enabler. But uh, we didn't talk about those things. So we just went back, <coughs> went back to California and pushed hard on you know, just going the same, along the same path that we were on. I'm going to try and move along fast in terms of covering a, uh, a lot of time. Okay, here we are, 30 years in a, in a sort of a capsule. We stayed in California and, and pushed hard for five years, and by that time we're involved with some psychiatrists and some sort of strange uh, medical ailments of my wife, and we decided it's time to move. So in five years we moved four times, and uh, that didn't help, of course, but we wound up in Baton Rouge and stayed there for, uh, for the rest of our lives. Uh, by the time we got to Baton Rouge, uh, I understood that uh, my wife had uh, some problems with pre prescription drugs. Uh, and she was seeing a psychiatrist a great deal. And there may have even been a problem with alcohol, but the denial was pretty strong. Uh, we went to see a psychiatrist once and <clears throat> together, and when he said something about there may be some alcoholic problems here without even looking at one another, we both got up paid the bill, walked out of there, and never mentioned that word again in our life. I mean, it was total, complete denial, although there was certainly plenty of evidence there in our home. For the next 24 years, unbelievably, the disease just continued its slow, steady work. Uh, I don't know why it took so long, except uh, we were intelligent people. We had uh, resources. Uh, we had uh, a lot of tools to fight with. And we probably won, particularly my wife, won a lot of battles, but she was just uh, fighting a losing war. And uh, <clears throat> there were a lot of um, good times in that period. Uh, I remember uh, some in particular. For one thing, we raised two fine daughters, uh, and I know they were damaged. Uh, when I look at them today, I'm very thankful that uh, the damage was not so severe, and we're very proud of them today. Uh, there were a lot of good times with families and with friends. We went on vacations. <coughs> we did things socially. There were just a lot of good elements to that life, although underneath, things were just slowly, inevitably going to pop. Uh, I guess one of the sort of good things was that we did not kill one another. Um, <laughs> I know I thought about it, and I suspect she did too, and uh, somehow or another we were fortunate, and we did, in a sense, and we just drew the line. At, at violence. There was plenty of verbal abuse, but it did not go beyond that. <clears throat> I think I forgot to tell you that I was saying something to Martha about um, if I lose my place, I'll just uh, have to go back and start over or do something like that. And she said, oh no, don't do that. Don't do that. Just say, and then it got worse, and go on. <laughs> and that might be a little bit appropriate here. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how worse it got. You all know about, <laughs> about how worse it got. But I thought I'd mention a couple of things that may give you a little bit of flavor about what was going on. Uh, one morning I went out and looked at my work car, and it had a flat tire. I didn't think too much about it. I put the spare on and went to work. I was 15 minutes late. I came back home, and my wife said something about, were you late to work today? And I said, yeah, you know, I had to change the, the spare. And when I took it in to the repairman, he said, no, nail, it was just flat. Okay. A few weeks later, it was flat again. And the same thing happened. And I still didn't make any fuss at home. And then the third time, same thing. And then one morning, I went out, 
and both back tires were flat. <laughs> I kept my wits about me. I went in the house, got my wife's car's keys, and went to work. Of course, when I got home, <clears throat> she hadn't been anywhere. <laughs> in fact, uh, she was in the back part of the house, somewhere lost in her own world. Uh, those were the kind of little pickings that one another started out with, and it just got worse and worse and worse. But that was the beginning of our, like I said, picking at one another. That round, I think, went to me. <laughs> I was in the habit of marking bottles, and one morning I had marked every single bottle in the liquor cabinet with a mark where the liquid level was. And when I came home that night, and the first thing I did, I looked in there, and lo and behold, on every single bottle, the liquid level was a full inch above my mark. <laughs> And she was standing there with a big smile on her face, and she obviously thought it was funny, and I did not. <laughs> and I think that round went to her. <laughs> one, uh, one, e one evening after work, I came in, and in our living room was a nephew from Texas, a young man that we knew and liked, and it was a young lady with him, and he introduced her as his fiancée, whom we didn't know. And I said something about wife, my wife. He said, well, she let us in and disappeared, and that was two hours ago. So I went to the back part of the house, and my wife was unconscious and just barely clothed a little bit and uh, sort of bloody and bruised from some prior falls and lacerations. So I went back to the living room and told Harry and his fiancée that my wife didn't really feel like going out to dinner, but I would like to take them out to dinner, and would they go? And they reluctantly said yes, and we went out and had a very uncomfortable dinner. And then they said goodbye and <laughs> headed off on their way. Uh, part of the story is that two weeks later, that engagement was broken. Uh, so far as I know, for the next three years, Harry did not get engaged. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I have tried to contact Harry twice in the last six months to make some amends long overdue. And I've gotten no response from him. So apparently he still does not want to have anything to do with the Reichel family. <clears throat> Uh, on another day, I woke up and there was the smell of bacon in the house. And I thought it was a strange because uh, there hadn't been any bacon cooked when I got up for decades in that house. But when I went into the kitchen area, my wife was up and looked pretty uh, happy with herself. And the table had been set for four places with the best china, the best silver. There was orange juice on the table, there was sweet rolls cereals, milk, everything, the bacon had been cooked, and uh, I said, what in the world is going on? And she said, the grandchildren are here. And by that time we had three. And I said, where are they? And she said, they're in the backyard. Can't you hear them? They're out there playing and laughing, and we'll come in shortly. Of course, when I looked out into the backyard, no one was there. Um, we had obviously gotten into the hallucinatory stage of, of alcoholism. Um, I hadn't had a good breakfast in a long time, not a home-cooked meal, so I sat down and ate twice the normal amount. <laughs> went off to work, and when I came home, of course, my, everything was still on the table, and my wife was, uh, once again, somewhere in the back part of the house, uh, lost in her own world. Uh, we did a lot of, of good things, and among them was take good vacations, fine vacations. We saw a great deal of the world and had a, had a wonderful time, and eventually... Even that kind of distraction wasn't enough. We'd been in Canada for about three weeks, and it was just a dismal vacation. My main recollection was uh, having to do with getting alcohol or getting rid of it or whatever. It was a dismal vacation, no fun at all. And I came back to Baton Rouge, 
and a couple of weeks, well, almost immediately, uh, went to my first first Al-Anon meeting. I wasn't sure about that first meeting, but I went back to a second meeting, and that was all it took for me. I mean, after the second meeting, I never had a thought again that I would not come back to Al-Anon, and uh, that's been true for a good many years now. If you had asked me at that time why I came to that first meeting or stayed for them, I would have given what I thought was the right answer was that I wanted to find something to do about my wife's chemical addictions or alcoholism and and find a key so that uh, she would stop, and that was the only problem that we had. It wasn't too long before, after coming to Al-Anon, that I began to understand why I really came to Al-Anon. I was terrified. I was just could not believe what had happened to me, to my life, uh, to our lives, to the family life. Uh, I was not the person I wanted to be. I did things that I did not want to be. I did not want to be that kind of person. I did not want to say and act the way I had been saying. Uh, I had strange thoughts about it, abandoning the whole situation and just couldn't believe what was going on in my mind. And I thought I really was losing touch with reality that I was losing my mind, and that was just terrifying to me. And I came because I was just scared to death or whatever, but just totally driven by fear and terror about what was happening to me. And it was, it was selfish, but I was at that stage. And uh, I need, I need to, to mention, that was the reason I came. I can tell you a little bit about where I was. I was lonely. Uh, <coughs> spent a lot of time uh, at, at work dreaming about the problem. I spent a lot of time at home, most of the time dreaming or thinking about, about the problem. Uh, I worked a lot. Uh, I stayed at the job as long as I could. Uh, the job and thinking about the problem were the two main uh, facets of my life. Uh, we were isolated. Uh, we long ago lost our social friends uh, and most of the family too. It was only my brother who would listen to me. And one of my former social friends was willing to, to listen to me, and otherwise we had no social life uh, whatsoever. Uh, so I came into the program in that condition and uh, just had, had found, uh, found what I needed. I uh, started going to, to two meetings a week, and uh, the only mistake I made was not realizing I could go to more at that time. But I subsisted on two meetings a week and every bit of Al-Anon that I could grab on to. Uh, I made a lot of progress, I think, in those next two years. Uh, didn't get all the way there, but I made a lot of progress for me, and it was slow. It took me a year to do my first uh, fourth step, but then a few weeks after that, I uh, did my amends, uh, worked off all that were on the, the list at that particular time. Um, I was in a pretty good place. I, I was comfortable. I thought I was making progress. I was reasonably uh, secure. I was beginning to communicate with my daughters and, and our family. I was more comfortable at work. I think I was doing a better job at work. And on the difficult problems of living in an alcoholic family, I think my batting average on making decisions was getting better. Not perfect, but I seemed to be a little bit more satisfied that uh, I was improving the quality of the decisions which, which I had to make. And I'm awfully glad that I had those two years under my belt uh, because... Truly, for the next five years, things got worse in a sense. They certainly got a lot more complicated. Uh, my wife's continuing medical and, and emotional problems just continued to, to get uh, worse and worse, and eventually got so bad that she was never able to really be taken care of in our home. And uh, so she left, and uh, 
spent the, the rest of her years in a variety of nursing homes and psychiatric hospitals and medical hospitals and live alone apartments and uh, retirement centers and whatever, but uh, never able to come home. Uh, the background to that uh, basically is that uh, the hold that alcohol had on her was so great that even though she knew that she would never again visit our grandchildren if she drank in their home, she was not able to refrain from drinking. And that was true. For the rest of her life, uh, she saw the grandchildren only in 30 minutes, very closely supervised visits about twice a year. And uh, She was also addicted to nicotine. And uh, that was so severe that at some point in time, she could no longer breathe naturally and had to have a tracheostomy. And she was not able to stop smoking even so. And that's a terrible way to, to get the air that you need to live. Um, the addiction to prescription drugs was similarly severe. And eventually, her doctors were decided not to write prescriptions for her unless she was in sort of a strictly controlled environment whereby somebody could administer the medicine that she needed for her health, and she was not able to do that herself. So, uh, at that point, to assist in providing the proper place for her, I went to the courts and got what's called a legal interdiction. I, I became her curator, uh, and basically what that means is that I became the parent with all the rights of a parent, and she became a minor child with only the rights of a minor child. Uh, and that was a, a difficult thing for me because there are enormous problems of control uh, when you're in that situation. And after about uh, a few years into this period, um, she heard about a new retirement center, Williamsburg, and really wanted to move there. And we had a smart psychiatrist who figured out that he could do something about that. And basically, we wound up signing a, a written contract. Uh, Williamsburg agreed to take her in. That was a retirement center, not a nursing home, but if we would provide 16-hour supervised care for her and she behaved or whatever that meant, they would, they would let her stay there. And uh, she wanted me to continue my daily visits, which I had been doing, but she wanted me to, to look at her and to talk to her when I visited her. And I had not been doing that. Uh, uh, she also wanted a, some, uh, a weekly allowance and uh, a bank account and some blank checks. And at last time, it really got me. I mean, that has been disaster several times before. But uh, I did that, and I want you to know it was never abused. It worked. So, on, on Saturday afternoons, <coughs> the four of us would go shopping and that was my wife and her companion and she had two companions and they were just real angels but my wife and a companion and a wheelchair for her and I would go out shopping and generally for things for the grandchildren or maybe some Christmas or Easter gifts or whatever and on Sunday afternoons if the weather was okay uh, we would go out and ride around the parishes and, and look at the countryside and new subdivisions or whatever and generally stop by and get some <coughs> fast food uh, and then go out of the house and she would come inside and, uh, and wander around and, and touch the furniture, maybe pick out a blouse or something that she wanted to wear and then almost inevitably would ask me, uh, when will I ever be able to come home again? 
And I never had an answer for that, for her or for me. And, uh, and now I'm going to sort of go back. Uh, my notes, my notes say, meanwhile, back at the farm. I'm going back sort of to the... <laughs> Go back to sort of the beginning of this period and, and hopefully change the tone a little bit. Uh, a miracle happened uh, about the, period, the beginning of this period. I was going to Al-Anon meetings and I noticed that Marcia was at those meetings and I almost immediately fell in love with her. Uh, I think now that's not so different. Almost everybody I know that knows Marcia immediately falls in love with her. Uh, there was no question about it. I enjoyed seeing her at meetings. And the day that I ran into her and saw her at a meeting was a better day than, than the, the others. Um, but now I had a few more choices to make. And uh, I guess I felt at the time that I had made a lot of progress in those early years in Al-Anon and my life was sort of on track. I had established a list of, of responsibilities and priorities for them. I knew I had responsibilities to myself in the program and I had responsibilities to my wife and, and my children and my grandchildren and both our, both our families and to my Al-Anon friends and, and just a lot of obligations and responsibilities that weren't burdensome, but they were part of my life and they constituted a very good life for me. I also knew I did not want to do anything to upset all of the progress that I thought I had made and I surely didn't want to go back and start adding amends to my list. I also knew that Marcia had her own set of obligations and, and responsibilities and, and priorities. And I think the miracle that happened was that without ever saying anything to one another about that, we sort of instinctively and innately knew that uh, what we needed to do was to go about fulfilling our duties and responsibilities we had been. And if there was some time left over where we might see one another, that was just lanyap and great. Not once did we ever say to one another or even think, I believe, that we asked the question, you know, what about me? When is my time? What about our future? And the miracle is that it worked. It just worked wonderfully. That, whatever was going on, enabled us to stay in today. And I think that was the only way, with the help of the program, that uh, I would have been able to do that and like, make a total mess of, of lots of lives. I found out that there were a lot of ways to spend some time either with Marcia or to see her, and the name of it is called service. Um, <laughs> I kicked up, probably for my own good, but for other reasons too, I guess. But anyway, I went from two to five meetings a week. You know, there was a pretty good chance I would see Marcia at some of those, and that was true. Um, I had been a GR and I decided to go back to area assembly after I had been a GR because I knew that Marcia attended assembly pretty regularly too. I started going to unity dinners and fundraisers and uh, anything where there was a likelihood that Marcia would be there also. Uh, and then it dawned on me that I could even do better than that. I could uh, begin to organize some things on my own. So I started with a series of canoe trips for Al-Anon friends. I knew Marcia didn't canoe, but I thought there was a pretty good chance she would come along, and uh, eventually she did. Uh, we organized, I organized a, a lot of uh, picnics and hiking trips to Tunica and Audubon Park and, and Port Hudson, uh, even a few uh, Alateen picnics, uh, things like the Super Bowl parties and whatever, and, and managed to build a uh, 
a social life and, and a lot of chances to see Marcia in what I call a, a public, non-incriminating <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> uh, I know that if I had not been solidly based in the program during that time, I would have managed to take that what I call that sort of cross chance cross crossing of our paths. I would have been able to really mess that up and make it a disaster for just a lot of people besides myself. One weekend, uh, early in 1990, I had borrowed a backpack and uh, I went up to um, Kasachi to walk the Azalea Trail with the Sierra Club on an overnight backpacking trip. Uh, it was something I had wanted to do for a long time. And when I got back home that, that Sunday night, my uh, Tennessee family was there, my daughter, my son-in-law, and the grandchildren, and they told me that my wife had died on Saturday night, um, that uh, she had had a heart attack, she slipped to the floor, and never regained consciousness, and passed away a few hours later. Uh, this was certainly a sad time for, for, for me, for, for both of our for both of our families. Um, not totally unexpected, but uh, nevertheless a very sad time. Um, I had heard in Al-Anon a, a little bit about grief and, and the grieving process and the steps that you need to go through, and I wasn't certain about, about all of that. Uh, all I know is that I think being in the Al-Anon program enabled me to handle that reasonably well, and in fact, to even perhaps skip some of the normal steps in grief. Uh, I know for one thing, I was never angry with God about what had happened. That just didn't occur to me. Skip that one. Uh, I know uh, I never did deny the reality of what had happened to her and that she was gone. Uh, I had learned enough in Al-Anon to, to learn something about acceptance. Uh, I needed to uh, and did uh, examine <coughs> the fact that uh, I was out of town when she died and I was not there when she died. And I think the program helped me a great deal in looking at that. And I found a lot to regret about that, but, but no guilt. And uh, that, I think, was a gift of the program. Alan also taught me, as I had been doing a little bit of, but it taught me to really go back and, and to value and preserve all of the parts of that long marriage that had been good and worthwhile and useful. And I'm still able to do that. Uh, I haven't hidden the less pleasant parts of it, but uh, all of the good things that happened are, are still there and are still part of my life. Just two little words here, not very important, but they're big for me, and it says our marriage. And I want to tell you, the end of 1990, Marcia and I were married. Uh, in a ceremony, and I know that a good many of you were there, and uh, I don't think of it as a ceremony. I think of it as a celebration, and a beginning of a much longer celebration, because it is still going on. The honeymoon has, has never quit. Uh, I would like and would have preferred to spend something like an hour telling you about some of the good times of that marriage, and some of, maybe some of the reasons why we think it has gone so well, and uh, perhaps at, at some other time. Uh, I need to get on a little bit more about my story, but I'll give you at least one hint. Uh, well, first, there are two big elements to it, and one, of course, is Marsh, and the other is a program. And I don't know which one gets top billing on why that has been such a successful marriage, uh, but uh, both of them are deeply involved. 
one thing that may contribute to it is that um, we work. Let me see if I can work it right. I have to, a tricky little saying, and now it's a slipping. We independently work our independent programs, and for us, that has been a key. We talk a lot of Al-Anon, but it's Al-Anon principles, and we don't talk Al-Anon personalities, and and we have our own independent programs, and that just seems to work great. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some of uh, the gifts that I've received on uh, my way to recovery, which is sort of a a trip in progress. I did not note the time when we started, and I'm a little concerned about the time, but I'm going to go ahead. If somebody wants to tell me how much longer, that's fine. I want to tell you about some of these incidents which I think are important, have been and are important to me. One night, one morning at at dawn, I was coming from the hospital. It had been a long day and an even longer night with a lot of medical and emotional crises with my wife. And I was driving down Hennessy Boulevard, and I was frustrated and depressed and tired and just weary, just just blocked. And all of a sudden, something happened. I don't know how to describe it, except a second before, I had been the old me. And a second later, I was pretty much the same me. But there was implanted within me somewhere the conviction that no matter what happened, I would be okay. And I didn't blow the horn. I didn't scream. There was no light, nothing. I just calmly went home, went to sleep for eight hours, which was rare, because normally I'd have been up at two hours later and back at the hospital, except for eight hours. And that conviction was there, firmly implanted. I never questioned it. Uh, it did me so much good in the days to come when things were really tough. I think I have finally figured out that what it did was it said, you don't have to worry about the future. I mean, you can live in today. That was a big barrier to living in today was the future. And all of a sudden, the future was taken care of. No matter what happened, I was going to be okay. And I really leaned on that for years, uh, during all of the tough times. When things really got smoothed out and better, I couldn't resist poking at that a little bit. I wanted to know, what do you really mean by okay? What if I get Alzheimer's? Is that included in a package? (laughs) What if I'm in a wheelchair? I'm not sure I would be okay in a wheelchair. And when I started doing that, I lost that conviction totally. It was gone. And I was just sliding down again, you know. So I quit. And in about a month, it came back. And twice since then, I have picked at it again and want to know the details. And I have finally learned that that is a gift horse I'm not supposed to look in the mouth of. And uh, God does not want me delving around in the details. And if I don't delve in the details, it comes back, and it's part of my life. And it is just one, certainly one, if not the best gift of the program. But no matter what happens, I will be okay. I will tell you that when Marcia was so desperately ill recently, I, uh, I lost it a couple of times, two evenings. Uh, got it before the evening was, was gone, but I'm still capable of, <clears throat> like I say, blowing away a gift like that you know, if I'm not careful. But uh, it's here now and it's here today. Um, I wanted to say something about step four. Oh, yes. Um, I didn't have a list the first time I did them, but I kept needing to make lists, and uh, eventually I remembered something about the Bible and a list in there which I call the seven lively character defects. That's a better tone than what's in there for me, and uh, I sort of like those 
the language is a little archaic, but I thought the thoughts were okay. And a short time later, a uh, good friend gave me a little book called The Seven Next Most Deadly Sins. And that had seven more. And those looked pretty good to me, too, in a sense that they might be applicable to me. So I had a list of 14 human characteristics as a checkoff list. And I have continued to use those. I never find something in a way of a defect that isn't covered by, by that list. And uh, <clears throat> I have resisted the temptation to call my character defects survival skills. And I have resisted to call them a character asset that I just carried too far. Uh, to me, character assets and character defects are parts of two different worlds, and they don't they don't blend together very well. It's a, call it by its real name, which I uh, prefer, character defects. Uh, talking about amends, uh, I did not use this the first time I made amends either. I spent a long time about what I would say uh, afterwards as I needed and uh, made more amends. I finally worked out a little scheme and I think part of it came maybe from ALP for which I am grateful. But my way of doing it once I have returned any material goods that need to be returned <laughs> uh, then all of the amends include uh, three little portions. One has to do with the past, one the present, and one the future. And the part about the past is I have to state exactly what it was that I did wrong. And I have to be very careful when I do that to never say you in an active sense. I never, just never say you did, you said, or you did anything. It's all right for me to say I did this to you, but not involve the other person. It just opens up the door for them to get into the conversation. Um, I also don't say I apologize, I am sorry, or forgive me. Uh, I used up a lifetime supply of saying I'm sorry in, in my first marriage. Uh, I said that so many times. Uh, in fact, I said it, saying it all the time. And what I really meant was, I'm sorry you caught me at that, and I wish you'd shut up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure <laughs> about what apology really means, and, and, and nor forgiveness in this circumstance. And to me. Those are just sort of a pallid imitation of an Al-Anon amend because they don't incorporate in them a commitment about what you're going to do the next time that occurs. So the, the second point is about the present. And there I need to say something about uh, how I really feel. And like I say, sorry and apologize aren't, aren't, aren't good enough in most cases. I need to say something about how uncomfortable I am. I'm not proud of what I did. I, I don't like to think about it, uh, but I'm, I'm forced to think about it. Um, uh, it's not the kind of person I hope to be. Uh, just say whatever about how you really feel about your doing that. And then the thing about the future is to say, in similar circumstances in the future, I am committed to behave in a different fashion and to behave appropriately. And those three elements... Uh, are pretty simple and straightforward, and for me, they had just made it enormously easier uh, to make amends. Uh, the other comments I have down here are that amends are forever. I think that commitment to change yourself is part of the amends, and like I say, amends are forever. You made that commitment to try and do that for a long time. And the other thing is that I never knew what was meant by make amends to yourself and put yourself at the top of the list. But after I had been through a list once using these same three steps, 
I realized that the best amends I could make to myself was to work through that list and do them. And when that was over, that was just a wonderful amends to myself. I didn't need to do anything else. There is a connection in my mind between character defects and amends. If I still have some character defects that haven't been removed, I'm surely going to be needing to make some amends given enough time. And if I'm still making amends, especially ones I've made before, then I need to go back and make sure I've got the proper character defect on the list. It's sort of a recycle loop, I think, that connected. Uh, one generates the other, and the other one says, go back and look. And, uh, I not only find that sort of useful, but it happens to coincide with a, sort of a medical view I have, of, I guess it's of the program, and it has to do with treating the symptoms and treating the disease. Uh, going to meetings and the literature and the fellowship and a lot of great and wonderful things about the program, I use, I enjoy, and they're essential, but they're just treating my symptoms. And it's only when I get around to working steps four through nine or maybe ten that I am really treating the disease. And if I don't treat the disease, I'm going to need the symptoms a lot more in the future. And the only way for me to change on a permanent basis is to treat the disease. So I'm not saying I don't love and appreciate and lean on and absorb all I can of the band-aids and treating the symptoms. But my real progress, I think, came only when I worked through four to, to nine or ten, and that's in a part of the loop. I still have to go back and continue doing it. I'm really serious about the time. I totally lost track. Well, some more things that happened to me on the way. Uh, <clears throat> when I came into the program, religion and spirituality were a can of worms to me. I had grown up in a formal church and uh, I heard religion, I heard spirituality. I never could distinguish the two. I, wasn't thought I, need, I didn't think I needed either one of them and uh, dismissed them. And the Al-Anon definition of religion and spirituality separated them beautifully from me. They were no longer tangled up together. Uh, I said, I need spirituality. And I've been working on that basis ever since. And I don't have any problems with religion, but I can keep that out of my spiritual growth. And it has just been a, a, an enormous freedom to, to have that, that separated that way for me. Part of that was the Al-Anon definition of prayer. I was similarly confused by prayer. Uh, I thought some of the prayers I had learned were beautiful English prose, but I really wasn't sure that they did much good. I sort of liked the way they sounded and uh, never did really use them very much until in the desperate days before I came into Al-Anon, and I would have said anything to get some help. <laughs> And so I started with that three-word prayer, you know, please help me, and then just please help, and then just help. But uh, the Al-Anon definition of prayer, being only asking for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out, I think is very similar to what is uh, sometimes quoted, that Al-Anon is only asking for guidance. prayer is only asking for guidance. And that has been such an enlightening definition of prayer for me that I have really latched onto it and use it almost exclusively. A few years back, I got to wonder about why the emphasis was, seemed to be so heavily on me, and what about people that should be on a prayer list if I had one, my concern for other people. And I have thought about that a fair amount, and now in asking only for guidance, I've somehow or another been aimed to include that about 
what do you want me to do to help the people that I care about and that are ill, that are sick, that need a job, just all the people I care about. I can include in that program without asking God to fix it, but just say, what do you want me to do that I can do to help? I, don't, I won't blame Al P. for this, but I think he said it one time, and uh, it's what anyone else thinks of me is none of my business. And the first time I heard that, I guess I was in a good place. I said, wow, that's a rock. You know, I really like that. And uh, that sounds fine. Ought to be a, a, an, an Al-Anon axiom. Uh, and then I started to apply it to work, and I ran into trouble immediately. I couldn't figure out how what the bosses thought of me was none of my business. <laughs> took me a long time, maybe a year, to finally figure out what the, the right answer there was and that that was true. My business had to do with doing my job and behaving in a certain fashion on the job and it didn't really have to do with what they were thinking. And then I tackled a tough one because I tried to apply it to the people I care about and are close to me. And I could not imagine that what Marcia thought of me was none of my business. could not imagine. But it just had to be, and I had to know that she thought well of me. And I struggled with that one a long time, and I finally seen what it looks like it's obvious to me now. She treats me so well. She speaks to me so well. She acts so well in my presence. What the hell is this bit about being in her mind? You know, I've got everything, everything, you know. And I'm convinced now what she thinks of me is none of my business. I'm not going to stir that pot. I'm just going to <laughs> go along with it. I know a good thing when I have it. <laughs> when I think about relationships, there are three elements of relationships. There's God, myself, and the third party. And I learned that in al And I didn't know exactly know what to do with those, except in my engineering way, I figured out, if you arrange those in order of priority. There are six different ways you can put those three down. And of those six different ways, you know, you can start with myself, God, her, or whatever. But of those six different ways to arrange them in order, there's probably only one that's right. And I'll just cut to the quick. The right one is God, myself, and the other party. And the rest of them lead to disaster. And I don't have anything better to do. I think about some of those other arrangements than put a name on them. None of them will work. Uh, some of them are a little bit attractive. The ones with me near the top are very attractive. But put God first, me next, and then the other party in, in third place. That has never failed to clarify and in almost all cases eliminate the need for getting into some sort of argument or whatever with third party about some phase of a relationship. Almost inevitably, by the time it has been thoroughly explored between God and me, it's either become insignificant, it doesn't matter, it's been solved, or whatever. And uh, I, just, I just think that's an unbelievable way of solving relationship problems. Every now and then I, I get to wondering about sponsorship and uh, thinking that there really should be two sponsors. And sometimes this thought comes to me when one of the few people I'm sponsoring sort of gets hold of me in a panic and have been trying and something is immediate and I need to talk about it right now and let's go. And I keep wanting to ask the question and I really haven't yet with any of them. Did you contact your number one sponsor first? I'm not sure what their answer would be. But by number one sponsor, I'm referring to my higher power or my God. You know, the phone 
to him is not heavy. It's never busy. <laughs> He's always there, day or night. It doesn't add to your phone bill. And it seems to me, and I try and do this myself, that rather than just, without thinking, rushing off and dumping on some sponsor, no matter how patient they might be, I need to, as I'm rushing for the phone, at least touch base with God and see what he thinks about it. Uh, so I have two sponsors. We have a lot of slogans, and uh, I really like the one that said, Think. But the sort of background I had, I thought that's a solution to an awful lot of problems, and I'm glad to see it up there. And then eventually I get to wondering about, well, why don't they have field up there? Because when I try and figure out what goes on inside of my head, it's almost exclusively feeling and thinking, mainly not thinking, but the minor part. But those two things pretty much describe what goes on up there. And so I've sort of wondered about who in writing those didn't put feel up there. And there are a lot of reasons probably why they picked it. But my own satisfaction with this arises from the fact that I have had more success, more little victories, made more progress if I'm able to think about my feelings. I don't get very far when I try to feel about my thinking. And so I just accept it that think is the one that I should start with first and see how far I get. I will tell you that one of the great gifts of the program is the God of my understanding. I just can't believe how wonderful, satis- wonderfully satisfying that has been to me, that that is the only God that I need to have, the God of my understanding. For a period of years there, I would get so enthusiastic about that, I really wanted to go out, grab you by the lapel, and make you listen to how great the God of my understanding was. Because he was so intelligent and kind and understanding and did all of these good things for me. That was the only path that you should follow. Unfortunately, I never did that. I've not totally lost that urge, but I am so enthusiastic about what I have discovered. I think part of that comes from my viewpoint that the greatest teacher for me about God is the whole world, the whole universe. As a scientist, I'm very much interested in a lot of those things. But I mean, from the Big Bang down to the last three minutes from the, from the universe to, to DNA to all of the people that are alive today, how all of them have lived and all of them that will live, that whole thing is a teacher to me of the nature of my higher power. And uh, that all sounds a little scientific and cold and so forth, but I can go with very personal, human, warm questions and problems and uh, generally find some sort of understanding by looking at sort of the big book that she laid out for us, which is the world we live in. Anyway. Um, heard one recently that uh, I'm still working with a little bit, and it goes something like this. Any attempt on my part to thwart the efforts of somebody who's trying to control me is in effect control is in effect some of my control. Didn't say that quite do it again. Any effort on my part to thwart the efforts of someone who is trying to control me is in itself a form of control. And I kept thinking back about the way I used to set boundaries and try and figure out was that a form of control or was I really trying to protect myself? And it has made me a little bit cautious uh, when people do things that I say, he's trying to control me, 
that's control, I'm not going to do that, they're trying to control it. It's maybe a little bit cautious about how I respond to that and just be sure I don't do it with another form of control. It's awfully easy for me to combat control with control. And that's, that's just a deep well. One, I will mention only a word because uh, I think a wise member of this group, after talking to her a little bit, as we do occasionally, uh, brought it up, and I think she probably was intending to give me a little bit of a message because, uh, anyway, and that word was complacency. And uh, I have a tendency to, to get complacent about uh, how well <coughs> I have managed to run everything lately. It's going so well. Uh, I think I tend to, to lack a little bit of humility. So complacency may not be on my list of character defects, but it's down at the bottom there, and it reminds me to, uh, to not get too complacent in the program. If I could find page six, I would end. I told Marcia that uh, I did not have a proper closing, and she said, that's all right, just give them an improper one. <laughs> If you want an improper one, <laughs> you just have to check with Marcia afterwards. <laughs> if I tried something like that, I would really blow it, I know. So I'm going to do something fairly simple, and I hope proper. Um, I have what I call Alan on Perfect Days, and uh, they are maybe not the most memorable days in vacation, winning the lottery, and, and all big, exciting very material things. There are more apt to be days when I probably stay in Baton Rouge, <coughs> uh, maybe sleep a little bit late, uh, but uh, probably sometime during the day, uh, <coughs> contact some friends, maybe write an email to one of the daughters or some friend, go to a meeting, <coughs> do some reading, not necessarily on on literature, whatever, work on some of my hobbies, fiddle around in the yard, <laughs> talk to Marcia before we get up, before we go to bed, whenever, you know. And pretty soon the day has gone by. And I'm not sure I would like for the rest of my days to be quite that way. So when I go to bed at night, after days like that, I can say, this has been an on perfect day. I'm not really sure that I would change anything right now. It looks like everything went the way it should. And I can go to sleep with, with no problem whatsoever. And uh, today has started out to be that kind of a day. I will not change any bit of it to this moment. And I'm pretty sure that tonight uh, I will look back and say, yeah, that was a nice day. Leave it alone. That's, it was great. So my prayer and, and wish for you is that today turn out to be an now perfect day for you too. And more importantly, is that for all of us, that all the tomorrows turn out to be now perfect days. Thank you. Thank you.